listening to Soul Knox Podcast, and I'm your host, Carl Hikara. And this is episode number 83 of the podcast. And this week on the podcast, I have Nazgul from the band Obsidian Shrine. Um, he came on and we talked about the band, uh, their, particularly like their kind of um, progression, uh, their last album, which is fucking killer. Uh, we talk about... Um, about uh, uh, gear and uh, black metal and all kinds of stuff uh, across the conversation. It was awesome talking to him, and um going to have him back on pretty soon to talk about an upcoming EP that he has coming out. So uh, keep your eyes open for that. Um, but yeah, definitely going to have him back on. It was awesome talking to him, and definitely check out the Obsidian Shrine album, as it is very sick. And... Um, yeah, so that's what's going on. Uh, a little bit late um, this week for the podcast uh, because of uh, Wednesday. I went and saw the uh, movie Thanksgiving, the new Eli Roth movie, which was great. Highly recommend checking that out for sure. And then last yesterday was Thanksgiving, obviously. So, uh, you know, we're a little bit late, but that's okay. You'll get episodes back to back this week. You get one tonight and then one tomorrow. So, um,. But yeah, so hope you guys enjoyed the episode. I'm going to get into the uh, plugs, and then we will get into the episode properly. And uh, yeah, I'd like to uh, obviously belong to a group of horse, uh, podcasters called the Horsemen of the Podcast Apocalypse, which is every other Monday. You have Brandon Legion with Horror Wolf Six Six Six. Every Tuesday, you have Into the Necrosphere of Jackie Schmidt. Every Wednesday, you have Everything Went Black with Mike Hill. And Mike and I do our Darkness Weaves collaboration podcast between our two podcasts, which is all about the work of Carl Edward Wagner. And uh, actually, the next episode that's coming out is the beginning of the next, I guess, next era of that of that series. We're getting into the Kane stories, starting off with the story Undertow. So that's coming out tomorrow, so you can look forward to that. Um, and then... Um, uh, what was I going to say? I kind of just blanked out for a second. And then uh, every Thursday you have Necromaniacs with Mike Hill, Mike Scandato, and Jeff Kashid. Every uh, Friday you have Spitball Media, formerly known as Break the Apocalypse. And in the immediate times when he feels like putting an episode out or has one to put out, we got Iblis Manifestations with Cheyenne of Trivax. So... And yeah, so that is the uh, the horseman of the podcast apocalypse. And uh, be sure to go ahead and uh, um, follow everybody, uh, like, subscribe, all that kind of stuff uh, on whatever podcast you're on. You know, do some reviews um, and please share and spread the word for not only my podcast, but all my fellow horsemen as well. Uh, is greatly appreciated, and uh, of course that is what gets everything out. And you can follow me at either my name on Instagram or at Denver Underground Radio, which is the um, which is the online radio station that I run with my friend uh, Ken. And we have uh, episodes live every Tuesday and Thursday. You can stream at uh, DenverUndergroundRadio.com. Um, the shows both start at 9 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So yes, yeah, so you can, um, and you can uh, go on the website and see more details about that. And then you can also follow us on Instagram 
and see all the uh, set lists for the show as well as getting uh, um, what's the word uh, getting uh, uh, links to all the Spotify playlists and then you can um, also see all the stuff about the podcast on there as well it's kind of a one stop shop and then um, also be sure to go follow my friend my uh, Constantine Tunahovi with uh, Mycelium Signal um, not one of the horsemen, but an associate of mine. Um, he's uh, just released some pretty cool episodes. He's about to get some more coming out as well. So, yes, yeah, so if you're into particularly the occult and esoteric and all that kind of stuff and even weird fiction, horror, and stuff like that, go check out Mycelium Signal. And finally, I do have a Patreon, the patreon.com forward slash Podcast. $2 a month and you get two to four bonus episodes a month and also the uh, knowledge and pleasure that you're helping everything helping out the podcast I'll uh, shout you out on the main feed as well if you join and um, yeah definitely really helps a lot um, and I really appreciate every single person who has signed up for that for that and um, yeah would like to see that grow I got it I probably won't be as releasing as much this month uh, just because of my work Um but I should have the next uh, Dracula episode soon. And then we'll get back up and running with even more episodes um, in January for the Patreon itself. So, yeah, check all that out. And, um, yeah, hope you guys enjoyed the episode with Nazgul of Obsidian Shrine. And, uh, yeah, hope you guys enjoy as much as I enjoyed having the conversation. And uh, talking about black metal, Satanism, all those kinds of stuff. Um but yeah, hope you guys enjoy. Hail Satan.
Awesome. Well, welcome to uh, to the podcast, man. Appreciate it, man. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, uh, we got in contact. I mean, a little bit ago. I think you've been following Jackie's podcast longer than Solon Knox. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jackie is kind of the uh, the initiator to get me following the Horseman, and uh, really turned me on to a lot. Actually, uh, the band that we did the split with. Uh, Salt turned me on to the Into the Necrosphere podcast, and uh, it's it's been a domino effect from there. Yeah, yeah, I remember. I think you added me after the uh, Nas Alchemist last Nas Alchemist. Uh, or I think last yeah. time last time he came on, I think somewhere around there. I don't remember when. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it got me interested. Well. What initially got me listening to you uh, was your satanic topics. Right. Because there's, I, I was actually seeking out a few satanic related podcasts and things of that nature. And I've come across a couple and, and I like your deep dives and the, your discussions on it. And the fact that you also are interested in black metal, metal in general. Uh, was the bonus on top of that right yeah i've noticed that the uh satanic episodes uh, get a pretty good pretty good amount of traction which i think is good i think it's probably because um there's not really you know uh, too many like legitimate podcasts talking about that kind of stuff because i mean a lot of the ones that i i see that i found have all basically been you know satanic temple things and they're they're yeah. not they're, it's not really like uh they're not really a cult, you know, they're, they're just talking about like politics and stuff. The, you know what I mean? So the closest one I've come across is hail Satan podcast. And, uh, he was initially, I guess, associated with the satanic temple, but due to the nature of the satanic temple being more of a, uh, sociopolitical movement than an actual, satanic ideology he kind of he's he's ruffled a lot of feathers there and uh has embraced more of what he calls outsider satanism which i tend to uh agree with at right. times so yeah i'll have to check that podcast out i've seen some friends share it but i hadn't got i kind of forgot to to listen to you know like i saw some people share about it and i was like oh, i should check that out and then i forgot so i need to yeah check the, that uh, the guy that the guy that runs it's name's Joseph Rose. Uh, I think he's from around Philadelphia, somewhere in that area. He runs a, a, a group called Satanic Delco. But uh, he's, he's got some fairly interesting topics. He, uh, he tends to cover a lot of bases with what I consider a less uh, biased toward the political aspect of it, that, which a lot of Satanism has been just co-opted by at this point. Yeah, it's very it's very frustrating to see um, the term Satanism being co-opted so much by the Satanic Temple, like to the point that it's like normal people now like seem to associate they don't even they don't even know the difference between the Church of Satan or the Satanic Temple, and they, yet they associate it with the Satan, you know satanism with this satanic temple thing is because they've been so 
um, public, you know, like doing interviews with all these people going on all these shows, like really like, yeah. like kind of, um, you know, taking, taking various, very public media stance. So it's kind of annoying because you kind of have to be like, if you're a Satanist, you kind of be like, I'm not that kind of Satanist. You know what I mean? Like, no, it, I don't associate with that stuff at all. It went from extreme individualism to another form of her conformity. And anytime you have to conform to a group ideology, you're completely missing the point, in my opinion. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. And I think that it's just like, their whole thing too just doesn't i don't know i mean they have some underlying concepts which you know like freedom of speech and stuff like that which i think all people who are satanic can agree upon but then they just take it to this other point where it's more about making these political grandstanding and and um and all that kind of stuff that just really i just don't care for and i don't really pr like that that's what you know People think of a, a lot of the public now. rituals they're doing have become absolutely ridiculous and making satanic ideology turn into more of a joke than like for me it's always been something that's extremely personal no one satanist can truly identify with the other because what you feel is absolutely unique to you I don't feel like you become a Satanist. I feel like you're, this is who you are the entire time. Yeah. So this, this idea that you can just jump aboard, whatever the hell social movement they're doing is just ridiculous to me. Yeah. That, well, yeah. Even Anton LaVey even said that a Satanist isn't made, a Satanist is born. You know, you're either born that way or not. And that's something that I 100% believe that you're like, you're naturally, you know, most people who are in, who are really into true Satanism have always been probably drawn to that since childhood. And they've always kind of been on that kind of path. You know, they just eventually kind of find that that's the best name for what they are, you know. And the thing with um, what the Satanic Temple does is they, they've kind of created this kind of, I guess it's just a it's a social club type of thing or, you know, it's like a kind of thing where you have people from you're like, oh, I'm going to try this out now and be I'm going to be a Satanist. And it's all cute and cut, you know, this makes me sick sometimes looking at some of the cute, cuddly bullshit that they do. You know what I mean? Like, you're just like this. That's what really bothers me sometimes, too. <laughs> I, I absolutely agree. You know, the funny thing is my path began when I was probably about seven or eight years old and my neighbor, which was my friend came over to my house with another neighborhood kid and made a comment about how they saw the devil in the woods up behind the high school, which was right up behind my house. And, uh, this, my, my friend had a scratch on him. Of course they were full of shit, but me, wanting to confront this i was uh at that age i was an avid archer this was back in the 80s and my grandmother had just bought me uh the like the rambo hunting knife yeah <laughs> and I, I strapped on my rambo hunting knife grabbed my bow and arrows and it's like let's go find him i want to <laughs> talk to him 
Yeah. And uh situation got more bizarre than I ever expected. We got lost in the woods. And because I grew up an outdoorsman, uh, I knew how to follow the moss one direction to get out of the woods. Right. And as we followed it, we came up on a house by a pond that used to exist. The house was vacant. We go in. And keep in mind, we're all young, uh, under 10 years old, every one of us. And there's blood everywhere in this house. (laughs) Things written in blood on the walls. And I, to this day, I can't really remember what it said. I was, you know, just shocked by what I was seeing. And we left and a, Another friend of mine, his dad was a police officer. And a few years later, I recalled this and I asked him about it and they would not tell us any of the details that happened there. That house got torn down. So. (laughs) So that's like, that's, that's a pretty bizarre like type of thing to like, yeah, just like wander into, right. You know, being a kid. Yeah. I mean, but that was, that was my first venture into deciding, I guess I wanted to meet the devil. (laughs) Right. And uh, grew up Southern Baptist, going to uh, the Southern Baptist Hellfire and Brimstone Church. Right. And every, you know, every week I would see the same people. What When you're supposed to bow your head and close your eyes when people come up and ask forgiveness, I'd see the same people going up every week. And after years, it dawned on me, these people were out beating their wives the night before, cheating on them, doing whatever manner of just foul shit. And they thought every time that they went up there, it was just okay. And that hypocrisy got me looking further, looking deeper. And uh, it wasn't long after that that I separated from that ideology altogether and started down my occult interest, my satanic path at a young age. So by the time I was 20 years old, I had my own small temple in the area and was ordained a satanic priest by another organization which I'm not even sure if it still exists, to be honest. I lost touch with them all at some point. What organization I, was I, it? It was the FCOS, First Church of Satan. Uh, it was the the founder. His name was John Dewey Ali. Uh, went by Lord Egan. Okay. And he was one of the original Church of Satan members and branched off to start his own thing. Okay. Did he like did he branch off around the same time as like Michael Aquino and all people did like in the 70s? Yeah, yeah. Basically during the uh the conflicts that started occurring around the more public status of the church. So. Yeah. Yeah, cuz I remember hearing like um you know, Church of Satan became a real big you know, a lot of people a lot of people who kind of already were kind of believing in this, like kind of joined and then 
a lot of, I know a lot of people kind of, because LeVay, I'm like kind of, uh, you know, I feel like he just, he kind of shifted gears in the set in the seventies. Cause he got, I think, you know, like was it 74 or whatever. And it, it seemed like at one point he bit off more than he could chew. Yeah, exactly. And it was, it was becoming a monster all of its own. And, uh, as a result, you know, there was a lot of fractious, uh, situations in the church. That yeah. Led to, uh, different, I guess sex forming, but okay. So yeah, so that was what that that uh, organization was that you were a, a priest in. So it's kind of like yeah, a, yeah. Did they um and was, then was it like a kind of a theistic like believe in Satan or was it kind of no 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 I've I've uh it was it was still very much in the same atheistic vein. Uh, is the original Church of Satan. It was definitely focused more on uh, a broadening of occult ideologies, just diving into uh, uh, it's been so long since I really, like I have a, a book that I made myself back then of a lot of the literature that was available, but they they just wanted to really branch out into more of the depth of occult ideology. Gotcha. The uh, what did you? What was the kind of the the way that you kind of uh, connected to that? You know what I mean? Like, and you know, before you joined, like, um, when sure. you were like a teenager, you know, like it was a kind of like, like for me, like I remember being like you know sixteen or whatever and buying the the, the satanic Bible and. That started kind of me off on uh, trying to find other stuff, which became a lot easier as time went on, right? But back then it was pretty difficult, you know. I, uh, I guess I slow eased into it in a way, uh, starting with the more uh, simplistic forms of like uh, Wicca, pagan ideologies, and just researching the history of certain things to the point that I realized that all these years later to me, Satanism and even then was a very personal journey. I was, I was very interested in meditation as for projection. Ever since I was a child, I've had uh, visions of paranormal things. And I was, I, I just had no reason to believe that there was a God out there watching over us that, that cared at all. If anything, there's just a, a creative energy. And its sole purpose is that, nothing else. There is no, there's no love, there's no caring, there's, there's whatever you make of this life on your own. And as a result, the idea of fearing the devil became completely absent. And yeah. I embraced becoming the good and evil in, in what I wanted to be in this world. Yeah, it's kind of a, a natural progression. Like, uh, yeah, I was never raised, I wasn't raised um, 
like uh my, my mom converted to catholicism like when i was like i don't know 10 or something so i kind of had that before that she was a, a witch and she was into tarot and all this stuff and then she went from that to hardcore catholicism but my dad but i was mainly raised by my dad my dad was into sufism and zen buddhism and stuff so and he was not really he's very hands-off about religious stuff so he kind of let me just kind of find my own way you know but so which is lucky because i wasn't having to deal with like super hardcore christianity stuff which i've done my throat all the time or whatever you know even with my mom she wasn't that bad about it you know so it was like uh so for me i like never really kind of had this whole thing where it was like never even the idea of like fearing the devil as some type of like thing that's going to harm you or something like a lot of people seem to think never even crossed my mind i was just really attracted to that dark force you know like i was always attracted to demons and that type of imagery and uh vam you know vampires and all that kind of stuff even from like being you know three or four so it's very like yeah likewise yeah so it's very like uh kind of natural progression for me of kind of like but i was also early in my path early in my path i was also really involved which is, i still am involved with like runic magic and stuff like that but probably I was more, I was kind of like in this middle point where I was like, I had the satanic part of myself. And then there's also this kind of nature magic, you know, runic magic stuff. And these two things are kind of unified, you know what I mean? To the, to the point yeah. where now it's kind of like one and the same thing for me, where when I was like, you know, 18, I felt kind of like I had two kind of things going in parallel a little bit. You know what I mean? Like It's, it's funny. I was asked recently, uh, some people that know me that knew I used to teach a lot were asking me about getting involved in satanic ideology. And I told them they're just going to have to find their own way in it, that nobody can necessarily teach it or tell you what to believe or what to think. It's, it's going to be your path. And for me, that's, that's where the music came in. Somebody asked me and I told them that the studio I'm in, this is my sanctuary. This where I, you know, record my music. That's my altar. Yes. Yeah, and <laughs> and my, you know, my instruments are my medium, my my tools. And this music is my magic now, which is where I'm at more nowadays. And earlier on, when I was having um, semi, what I would consider semi public gatherings, they were invite only. But you know. Uh, doing the actual dogmatic rituals and, and things like that. It was, it's been an evolution of, over the years to find where I feel most comfortable in this. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think music is definitely an extension of, I mean, if you're making, if you're serious about, you know the path and and everything then music's going to be an extension of that right it's going to be uh expression of that so i definitely know what you mean by that and also for me too like um particularly getting into black metal like really deep into it um came hand in hand with my kind of real spiritual awakening you know to my to my path you know like black metal was a huge portion of of that and inspiring that and being the soundtrack to that it's like you know it was like the soul the soul music i've been looking for you know what i mean that helped me Same. really evolve myself and find myself you know when 
when I created this studio that I'm in currently, it's it it took on a life of its own. And like the uh our last full length album, I wrote in a matter of just weeks in here. And every time I came in here, it was like the music was already there. I, I just had to put it down. Every time I come in here, I can feel just this energy that exists here. So it has become the most peaceful place for me to be at any given time. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, have made your studio being a your kind of virtual space in a way, you know, and that's actually really helpful. Um, I found the same thing that the times I've been most productive with music and, and everything is when I have like a space dedicated for it. Like um, when I did like, I've released like a bunch of my old demos recently. And when I was doing that, it's probably most prolific period of time musically. And I literally had this basement area in this townhouse I lived in. And it was like my area and I had my music area and I had my altar and ritual area over in the same room uh, saying, you know, literally like not far from each other. And I feel yeah. like, and the two things are so in, like the music that I was making at that particular time was hand in hand with the kind of magic that I was working and the things I was working with, you know what I mean? Like it was an expression of that. It was almost like I was working with certain things and creating the music to express those things, you know? For example, behind me, you know, you can probably see my bath mitt yeah. up on the wall there. That's awesome. And, you know, all the walls are black, even the ceiling. Like, I, I created just a, a space that is very non-distracting. So just, air, like, all the energy just really flows here. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good space. I like how... The, with the guitar too, like the way the lights hitting it in the background, and it looks like very uh, yeah, it, yeah, it looks cool. Got my yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, the um, it's nice to have that kind of that kind of dedicated space. It's just like because because also like uh, even on a psychological level, right? To um, when you have like a space like this, like when you go into it, your brain will like kind of automatically like switch gears and get into creative mode as well. And that helps like channel these things that you're trying to create. You know what I mean? Yeah. The, uh, you know, the, the music that I've been writing since I've created this, I went from spending weeks just working on riffs, crafting songs and this to, to coming in here. And it's like, everything comes together in just hours, you know, like I, I will come in with zero idea, no preconceived notion of what I'm about to do and hook up and start recording it. And it just comes out instantly. Yeah. That's, that's impressive too. I mean, like the, the last time you did the bloodshed under the black star out of the ones that I've heard from you, that's like, that's my favorite that you've done. Like, and I like the split you did with Salt as well, the songs on there. But I feel like um, that was the thing, like, because I'd listened to some songs you'd sent me in it a little bit. And so then I was like, I'm going to listen to the full albums. So I have a real good feeling of, like, what you guys are doing. And it's like, 
listening to that like blew me away like i put on the first song and the next thing i know like it was like at the end you know what i mean like it was just uh, yeah really uh captured my attention so i mean i appreciate that very powerful the, the writing well. processes from the first album to the second were extremely different first album we were a full lineup and uh still trying to kind of find our way and work with each other and then the band at one point actually fell apart due to uh member conflicts just other members having life issues that didn't didn't work well with what we were doing and uh when everything fell apart after a while uh Murmur and I decided to bring it back to life and I created this space and just everything started flowing a lot more easily. It's only he and I writing together now. We we handle everything just between us and it's it's we're very aligned in our ideology as well. So it it flows a lot easier. Yeah, I think that's important when you're working with somebody musically to be kind of on the same page and aligned in, in a lot of ways. That's why the thing with black metal that can, like, um, you know, uh, it took me like forever to find a drummer, you know, because it was like, well, literally like 10 years because I just like a lot of people that I met, you might be a good drummer, but I just don't align, don't, don't connect, don't align with you. You know what I mean? Like, had yeah. to find somebody that I could like work with. It's very, for me, it's, it's more difficult in black metal than other types of bands I've been in because it's like, uh, I take it very, very seriously. And it's a serious like art form for me and spiritual expression. So it's like, I don't want to work with just whoever, you know? And so it's like, I kind of, you have to find the right person. And even, even with like live, like I'd always tell my drummer, I was like, worst case, we'll just do it the two of us if we don't can't find other people to do other things. So just thinking in that process of like, okay, for me, I just want it to be working with the right people. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's the most important part. Yeah. Even at this point, Murmur and I are working together. Uh, when we play live, we play as a two piece. And I know we live in an age where there's a lot of conflict about using backing tracks. I write and record and, we write and record every bit of that together. So uh, when you're hearing the drums, the bass, the everything in the back, that's that's all stuff we did. It's not, we, we don't half-ass it. And it's, it's not that we're opposed completely to playing with other musicians, but finding other musicians that, again, align with our, our goals and are willing to put the same amount of effort that we're putting into it is a lot harder to come by. So yeah. we've, we've had other bands that we play with and surprisingly, uh, you know, playing as a two piece, we've been very well received. I wasn't sure how it would be taken, but we, uh, we just played a festival last weekend and a band named Carcosa, was actually trying to offer up their drummer to play with us live at some point, you know, uh, and I'm not opposed to the idea. It's just, 
a matter of logistics if it ever comes to fruition. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. It's good. It's better to wait until you have the right person, and then, uh, you know what I mean. Like then, then like then like compromise your vision. You know what I mean. Like that's always the best thing is to, to you know if the right person comes along, then uh, then you go from there, right? You know, it's like not about instead of compromising just because you're like, okay, this is like this person could do it, but you know, they're like don't give a fuck about anything that we're what we care about, you know, like that can be <laughs> I know, I mean I also, guess you know you listening to us, I'm sure listening to our drums, it's very demanding. Uh yeah. We are uh and when you hear the the new stuff that we have coming out next year, uh if if I find a live drummer that has the stamina to do it, wow, that's all I can say is they're gonna have to uh really be in tip-top shape to play some of the stuff we're doing yeah you need to because... you're gonna need somebody like the like um the Oculus drummer like he's a he's a beast you know somebody like on that level yeah <laughs> yeah you know scott who recorded uh the drums on bloodshed he was in uh, a band called fornicus he's a phenomenal musician but he is he's so tied up in a lot of different things that having time to work together just isn't feasible. So I, I typically handle all the drums in the studio and when I go, I go hard. So, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. That's one thing that I wish I could, uh, I, I'm not a very good drummer, you know, like I can, I used to do uh, keyboard drums. I played a few fingers, you know, I could like on my, some of my old demos yeah. and I could make that work, but, Whenever I try to actually play drums, I like pretty, uh, pretty well. well I, I, in full disclosure, uh, I'm not, I'm not playing. Oh, okay, right. Uh, we, it, as a matter of fact, I heard one of your recent guests talk about Yergatone, uh, cult drums. Yeah, my, yeah, my friend. And uh, so using that's, the, that that's one. what we've been utilizing for a few years now to do all the writing with it's it's one of the most phenomenal programs i've come across gotcha yeah. and the uh you know does it sound the, the sorry well the drums on uh the split that's that's all your guitar okay yeah that sounds really good then <laughs> so i mean not m most people have the good thing about it is it's all live tracks like they they record all these parts i'm I'm just able to man, manipulate it in the way that I want it to come across, okay, yeah, that's actually pretty cool then like for for that kind of thing, like for it to sound that good, you know what I mean like 'cause 'cause it can be really hard to i mean for me to i say like program drums like to sound right, particularly for like blast beats and stuff, it can be difficult, so it's cool that they they have a, like a lot of it. A lot of what I've heard in the past had a very mechanical, you could tell that it wasn't real sound. Yeah. Uh, the the technology has progressed so much at this point that, you know, the fact that they are getting like, for example, uh, they had the drummer for Behemoth go in and record a drum pack for them. Um, they have 
several different drummers that appear on these to give their flair to it. But through the magic of MIDI and imagination, you can turn it into whatever you want it to to suit your needs. That's really cool. Yeah, I didn't, didn't know about that. So, yeah, Inferno is a, a great drummer. I, um, I don't even have heard his, his side project, though, Terrestrial Hospice, that he does with um, the guy from Thunderbolt. That's a really I am cool not familiar with that band. I, I'll I'll be honest. His band, uh, what Azareth? Azareth, yeah, yeah. Azareth. Azareth, I think, is one of his other ones. Yeah, I I really like them a lot. Uh, yeah. I think they trump Behemoth by leaps and bounds. But yeah, Azareth is is you know one of the best like. Uh, more i guess newer polish death metal bands you know they're not they're not as old as like vader or something but you know <laughs> they've been around for yeah. a while though they've been around since i think what the late 90s i think it to me it allows his uh ability to shine a lot more so. yeah and well, yeah i definitely should check out trestle hospice because that's um it's like a real classic black metal type of thing so you get to hear inferno playing like more traditional black metal drums and stuff and it's real raw it's pretty cool right on. yeah a lot of it yeah really... I, I i wasn't aware of it until now but i'll i'll definitely make a point to look it up yeah their new album was really good the uh one thing about about obsidian shrine is that the um that i noticed listening to me it feels very like um uh very much u.s black metal like it feels like very very tied to uh reminds me a lot of kind of a lot of older types of u.s black metal stuff that you don't you don't really hear people playing so much like you know you know like back with like cult of azazel and all those types of bands where they have that kind of aggression and yeah you know a little bit of that death metal element and it's very which i really like i like that you guys are keeping that kind of thing alive because i feel like so much u.s black metal has kind of gone some other way you know what i mean where it's kind of like it's nice to hear somebody keeping that real more aggressive ballsy type of sound alive you know uh a lot of the u.s black metal now and has turned into more of a very melodic or uh who was it that said oh it was uh morgan from marta made a comment about black metal is supposed to be a fist in the face of God, not about crying down by a river. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, a lot of the U.S. black metal now, with few exceptions, has that more crying down by the river feel to it. So Yeah, way too much. I My influence is, like, I'm 44 years old, and the 90s, early 90s, is when I got into black metal and that's what still resonates most to me. And then Murmur and I both come from a death metal grindcore background. So it, it definitely shows up in what we're doing. Yeah. Which is what I like. I mean, I guess like to me, you know, I'm a little younger cause I'm 36 and I remember coming into black metal early two thousands, you know, to me, I felt like U.S. black metal at that time was before before the kind of Cry by the River bands kind of came in. It was more defined by this kind of aggressive quality to the music. You know, still 
atmospheric, satanic, but then very had this kind of aggression and darkness to it, which it, which I really like. To me, our song topics are brutal, so the music has to reflect the brutal nature of our topics as well. So, and I also like that you have like solos and all that kind of stuff as well. You got you know all those types of things in it, which I appreciate quite a bit. You know, yeah, it's uh. It, that, that's one thing that's very contentious it seems in black metal i hear a lot of people bitching about you know solos but to me i think if well placed and and done well it can really add something to a song uh plus i've been a you know a huge necrophobic dissection emperor fan i mean you know a lot of the inspirations I take come from the Scandinavian, uh, you know, European metal. I mean, right now I'm wearing a impaled Nazarene shirt and absolutely love that, that blend of punk black metal and just still adding that the show of musicianship into it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, that's one thing I love about Impaled Nazarene had always said that, you know, it's kind of, I guess, a little bit more old school type of mentality, you know, which um, I just like that. I like when bands, black metal bands, like put in cool solos in the right way, you know, and I've always been kind of never really quite understood why people, you have these other guys who are like, no, there can't be any solos. It can only, only has to, you know, like, because I mean, black metal has always had solos from the very beginning, you know, so it's like. I don't know where that kind of mindset came in, you know? <laughs> I, it, to me, it's laziness. You know, it's kind of the difference between heavy metal and the grunge movement. You know, just it went from being about really showing, creating a great song to just how dumb can we fucking make it. And sometimes that pure aggression just, Pure dumbed down caveman aggression is really great, but if you're shitting on somebody who's trying to put the effort into writing what they feel is a great song by adding the solos, by adding whatever works, it's just it's laziness. Yeah, it's it's almost like they're pissed off that they can't do it, so they're just gonna shit on it. I feel like that might be part of it, you know. <laughs> you got these guys probably could, you know, never solo in their day in their life, and they they just like get mad. Like, I want all black men to just be this way so that I don't feel bad about myself. You know, it's like, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, it's just like challenge yourself a little bit. I mean, I'm not a great solo soloist, but I still try to put those in my songs so I can, and because I think it's kind of fun because it gives you a challenge to try to figure out how to write a cool solo in a part even if you're not like a you know a shredder you don't have to be a shredder to make cool guitar black metal solos you know what i mean yeah i mean compared to the people who inspire me i i'm not a, i don't feel like i'm at their level by any means you know the solo and title track bloodshed was done by sebastian from necrophobic right and uh i mean me trying to when I recreate that solo live, I do it like 80% what he wrote and 20% my own style. That way it's it's still me, but I'm paying homage to 
what he did to it. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's really cool but, that you had a you know, I remember you telling me that on, uh, we're, I think we were like talking on Facebook about necrophobic. And uh, I remember you saying that that he did that solo, and I was like, "That's so cool that you have Sebastian from Necrophobic doing a solo on it." Because it's like I'm a big, big admirer of his work, and I th I think all of, I think like all the stuff Necrophobic's done with him that he's written is their best stuff. You know, like like when he joined with Third yeah. Antichrist is where I you know I like the first two albums, but when he joined in Third Antichrist, that's like my favorite era. You know what I mean? No, it's it's funny. I've been a the, the first Necrophobic album I heard was Dark Side, and it, it got me hooked. And that's that's why we have Nailing the Holy One on the uh, Bloodshed album. Yeah. And I had been following Sebastian and Joaquin and some of the guys on uh, Facebook for a while. And when we came to do this album, I, I couldn't find any uh, reference point for just like learning those riffs properly. So I reached out to Sebastian and asked him if, uh, you know, if, if there's any video tutorials or anything. And he, he helped me out by showing me the riffs. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, we became, we just started talking more and more and became very, as good of friends as you can be from, you know, thousands of miles away. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's awesome. But yeah. So to have him actually appear on one of our albums, dude, that a lot of people look at fame, wealth, whatever is their measure for success and music. I, my, my measure has I've I've had some of my favorite guitarists do guest spots on something I created, and that that is unbelievable to me. Yeah, no, I think that's that's really, you know, that's a really cool thing to have, you know, to have him. And I feel like I know what you mean because it's like it's that kind of feeling of like success is that the fact that yeah you've you've accomplished this thing that's like really cool, you know. It's like not about. Know, how many copies of the album you sold or something like that is about how cool like the stuff the stuff that you're doing is you know what i mean <laughs> yeah you know realistically our our demo and our first album sold more copies but a lot of that also has to do with whenever we released bloodshed facebook paypal venmo they they all came down on us dude they like they shut our accounts down Really? Why? And with, when I reached out to them after all the hoops I jumped through, they were just the artwork. Uh, if you've seen the artwork, obviously we we target not only Christianity. Oh, something happened. Uh... I'll just say, thank God, lost. Oh, there the, we go. I think I'm back. Uh, the, the we target Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. You know, any religious ideology, even touching. One, one, one second, man. Something happened with the sound. I got. Okay. Here, one second. I'm pop. Come on. There we go. All right. <laughs> now, All right. now we're back. So now, so yes, yeah, so you're saying that. Um, because your because your cover targets 
all three of the religions. So that's why you got in trouble with it. Uh, it's it seemed to be because whenever uh, the higher ups at like PayPal were talking to us, they said that it had something to do with not only the name of the album but the the artwork and they they started asking us all these questions about it and long story short by the time they that we actually got everything live and able to sell again we were past that pre-order point and you know when you're trying to build hype around an album and get people to notice it in this day and age people's attention spans are extremely short. So when they lose that window of opportunity, they just kind of move on to whatever the next thing is. Right. Yeah. It's really unfortunate that that happened. I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of a, a sign of something that really bothers me in our culture right now is that you can't, you can speak bad about Christianity as much as you want, you know, like Profanatica didn't have a problem, like, you know, posting stuff about, you know, rape the blood of Jesus or something, right? But if you're yeah. like, say anything bad about, uh, mainly Islam, it's not even that, All that's like, all of a sudden you can't say anything, you just can't, you know, all these things like take this stuff down, attack you, you know, like, and uh, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me because it's like, Islam's not a, a uh, you know, they try to make it sound like it's like a, a race or racial thing or something like, no, like Islam's a religion has nothing to do. Yeah. We've with, tried to clarify yeah. that, you know, whether you're Christian, Jewish or Muslim, it's, it's not you that we have the problem with. It's your ideology because it's fucking ridiculous. Yeah. You know, like, I just don't understand, like, uh, it's the same type of thing, like, you see um, these people who claim to be, you know, um, feminists and all this stuff. And back in the day, you know, not even that long ago, 10, 20 years ago, a lot of feminist people were against Islam because it was so repressive against women, right? You know, which you yeah. should be if you're a, a, a feminist, right? Or even, even like, gay, gay culture and stuff like that. And it's like nowadays it's become so anathema that you can't say anything about Islam. It's like now you see these people who are doing the opposite where they're like supporting Islam, but then like, but you're like, but why are you supporting this? Because if they had their way, they'd be stoning you. You know what I mean? Because yeah. that's because that's their religion. That's what they do in, you know, Middle East and other, you know, Islamic hardline Islamic countries. They, I mean, they stone gay people, you know, like women have no rights, you know, like, you shouldn't be supporting this particularly in Europe. I mean, I think it's pretty, pretty horrible to see like a lot of, you know, people in Europe, like kind of like blindly and ignorant, ignorantly supporting hardline Islamic stuff when that will really bite them in the ass if that ever gains control over Europe. You know what I mean? Like that. Uh, it's it's every... insane to me. I mean, you know, the people, move so blindly in social movements that they have no idea the hell that they are bringing upon themselves if they actually get what they want. Yeah. So that to me, this, this whole woke thing is just another religious movement. You know, it, it demands conformity to a rigid ideology that is ultimately going to end up in damnation for all those involved. It spreads nothing but chaos, hatred, 
division and people are just spoon feeding it to themselves. Yeah, it's it's like pretty much everything that they claim that they advocate for things that they do are bringing the opposite. You know, it's very it's kind of a crazy mindset, you know, because it's like it is I try to find very baffling. I mean, um, I saw this one thing and uh, I think it was in. Uh, I forget where it was, it's somewhere in the Midwest where the kind of woke, woke people had like um, uh, I think it was like a mayor. They like elected a uh, uh, Islamic mayor and then because of, you know, being diverse or whatever and the mayor because he was, uh, you know, hard, hardline Islamic is like against gay stuff. And so he canceled like the pride parade, you know what I mean? And canceled all that stuff because he's like, doesn't support that. And so now they're all like upset because that, cause it's like, but it seems like they don't understand that they brought it on themselves by not paying attention to what people actually believe. It's like, you can't just blindly, you know, do this stuff in the, in quote unquote name of diversity or whatever. Like you gotta be like aware of the fact that not everybody believes the same thing that you do you know what i mean <laughs> yeah when people start getting what they vote for i mean new york's a good example right now you know they were all happy-go-lucky talking about being sanctuary city and oh we're so welcoming and blah 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 and and now they're taking all these measures to ensure that immigrants are not coming there anymore or trying to send them back away it's it's just a product of them getting what they asked for. So nobody, we live in a very reactionary age. Nobody's thinking logically about sensible things anymore. It's just, let's try to appeal to the masses until we get what we asked for. Yeah, I just think that it's, I don't know. I guess the way I'm always about a lot of things is that you just gotta be realistic about the real, real things and not up your own ass about like what you imagined world to be like, you know, you just like, you have, instead of worrying about, Oh, somebody's going to call me racist or call me this or that. You just need to be real about certain things. And it's like, the reality is something like Islam is very much diametrically opposed to Western civilization. I mean, this is why our ancestors fought them off for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years because to try to keep, you know, and it's just that it's just the truth. It has nothing to do with race or any of that kind of stuff. It's just no, the fact not that at all. The religion itself is like a primitive caveman religion, basically. You know what I mean? <laughs> religion in general requires subjugation and yeah. subjugation through fear in order to work properly. And boy, they've they've done a hell of a job at it, but. Again, I'm with you. I don't understand, you know, why they, you know, there's not just brown people out there that are, you know, Muslim. They're, I, I used to work with a lot of Bosnian people and Bosnians fall either into Muslim or Catholic yeah. categories typically. And I mean, people just want to see, number one, I, and I think we all know this mainstream media is spoon feeding the masses bullshit. And the fact that so many people just eat it up is embarrassing. Nobody's capable of thinking for themselves. 
that's that's my problem when somebody comes to me again about satanic ideology i can't tell you what your past is going to be because you're going to have to find it for yourself and likewise with the the social the society in general just embracing this mass hysteria realistically in the streets most people are cool to each other but you wouldn't have you wouldn't believe that if you just watch the evening news yeah it's trying to yeah it's trying to do a bunch of bullshit you know it's like people need to turn on from that and look at the real world and people around them and get along and you know like try to find where we where we get you know the under underlying things that we all need to share so that we can all live our own lives in our own ways you know i mean in my opinion you know it's like that's that's what should be important is is you know freedom of speech and freedom of these different things these need to be the important things and people just need to learn to realize that not everyone's going to agree with you and you just got to focus on your own shit you know yeah i mean white black brown red you know yellow whatever i mean if you're cool to me, I can be absolutely cool to you. If if we share the music in common, whatever in common, we can find those common grounds. We don't have to focus on what divides us in life. But God damn it, it has come to that all too often now. Yeah, it's a it's a problem. Like um, I don't know, like Jackie's talking about in Necrosphere, like that. It really bothers me that it's come to it so much in metal as well, because to me, metal is always like one of those uniting things. You know, people, you can be meet people from everywhere across the world. We all share the same. If we all, you know, if you love metal, you share the same love and it brings people together, you know, and it's like a kind of like almost a um, unify in a weird way, kind of a unifying thing where it's like, you know, you talk to somebody you know, across the world and they're, they're also, they love metal too. And you have this shared thing and it's like, but when you start bringing like too much of politics stuff into it and all of a sudden that's like metal has become, you know, becomes divided too, you know, it's kind of like, it's annoying. It's, it's weird because I, I carry this view in politics, whether it's right wing or left wing, it's the same retarded bird. Yeah. <laughs> they, they're not, they're not out there for us. They're going to do what they want to do to line their own pockets. And it's it's coming out of ours. So while we're out here squabbling amongst each other, they're all getting wealthier and gaining more power to isolate and insulate themselves from normal people like us. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so yeah, I'm just... I'm sick of it all, man. I mean, the the state of politics, they, they might as well just, instead of the national anthem or whatever, when the president comes out, it should be circus music. <laughs> yeah, That would be more appropriate at this point. It doesn't matter which side it is. Yeah, I would agree with you. It's, um, it's a frustrating time watching everything that's going on. And just like, like I said, I get frustrated because I just feel like... Uh, I don't know. I feel like I feel like particularly when it comes to that, you know, political and social stuff, things like that. Um, the the logical way of being is to remove emotion from your from your decision making and that kind of stuff, you know, because you got to look at things rationally and a 
realistic way be like okay so what's what's the best solution for this problem how can we do that rather than sitting there and getting upset about stuff and getting like all emotional like people do now you know people are very like driven by this emotion and i don't know it's just like I don't know. That's part of that kind of maybe that satanic side of yourself where you kind of have sometimes you have to be like, it's like there's that logical side of Satanism that that comes out where it's like um, rather than letting everything around you just manipulate you, you know, you have to be outside of that and be able to, to look at reality in a, an objective way. You know what I mean? Well, you know, to quote an actual conservative pundit, facts don't care about your feelings. And, uh, you know, that's that's the reality of life in general. It There is either true or not. And when you try to find these gray areas to justify how you feel about it, it doesn't make it any more or less true. It is or it isn't. So. Right. And then making decisions based off of your emotional reaction to something, you know, generally is not the best thing to do. You know, that's how we get, you know, that's how you get into more problems. <laughs> I can admit in my in my twenties, and and I think this is true for most people. In your in your twenties, you're built around emotional reactions to things. And if I could go back and talk to that twenty year old kid, you know, I I tell him to look at the world in a little bit more, with examine things a little bit more before you form an opinion on it, and. As you get older, I think it's natural to start kind of finding that balance in life. And if I wish that a lot of the youth out there that are freaking out and shitting the bed over really trivial things would realize that, you know, at some point, none of it's going to matter. It's it's all just you're focusing on bullshit instead of a brighter future for yourself. Sadly, we still have a lot of older people still in that same way. And, you know, the games that our politicians play with us are to get us to be reactionary at every level, every single day of our lives. Again, the end goal is they're going to keep their hands in your pocket, taking every bit that they can get while you're just reacting to something else. Yeah, it's... it's um... That's like that kind of thing of um, getting their attention, somebody's attention this way while you're doing this, you know, like. Uh, yeah, it's the carrot is. on the stick. Yeah. Well, it's like you're focused on the just, carrot while they got the their carrot hand in on your pocket. the stick. <laughs> yeah, they're looking at so, the car- carrot and they have their hand in your pocket while you're looking at the carrot, you know what I mean? Bait and switch or whatever, yeah. The, uh, so, it going back to the music, you know, Part of it all is this is our our fucking middle finger to all of it, you know, whether it be religious ideology, social movements that are going to end up just being insignificant political ideologies that are dividing all of us. The power is when we finally decide to go, you know what, fuck all that. We can unite together create something better or worse it's it's a choice yeah i think i think like a lot of ways the power is to be in that point which i guess on some level if you're kind of outside of all that stuff that you're being led to be paying attention to and you like um 
focus on this other, you know, focus on this other thing that's like more important in some ways, you know, like, which is often more on a personal level. And, and then like in the same way, finding other people who are on the same page as you, you know, stuff like that, like building this kind of some, something like outside of all the bullshit, you know? I absolutely agree, man. There's, it's, it's a sad state of affairs out there, but we don't have to let it be that way. Yeah. I remember I uh, did uh, talking to Mike Hill one time about on one of the episodes we were talking about how um, if everybody focused on themselves and making their world the best that they can and, and helping the people in their immediate circle, if every single person just did that, the world would be a better place, right? Because that's what, that's all it takes is that people under individual level taking control, you know, taking rulership over their life and, and trying to be, be better in themselves and help people in their immediate circle. Right. You know, and that would just spread. And that's like, that's something I always think about. Humans are, are very tribalistic by nature. And when we try to interact with the entire world, that the way that we are now, you know, this social media has its, its blessings and its curses. It's brought me the ability to meet and become friends with people I wouldn't have otherwise. But even in that that big sphere, you have to keep your circle small because if you don't, the rest of it will drive you crazy. And I think too many people try to focus on the broad spectrum of everything that we have no control over. So just try to keep your your circle tight, your friends tight, make what is in that space count because there's a whole lot of shit in this world that you have no control over, no matter how much you think about it, dwell on it, protest or cheer it on. You can only affect your immediate circle. Yeah. Yeah. I'd agree with that. And I think that, um, it's just, that's the important thing is focusing on, on the immediate circle. And I think too, like, even with like, um, say the black metal world for example i feel like that there is this whole like side of all these bands that are nothing to do with black metal but then there's these other things that's like um the real black metal stuff is going on i feel like there's like a group of like a, you know a global type of scene growing of the people who are like still connected to what black metal should be and almost like ignoring all these fucking idiots who are like doing the cry by the river stuff you know what i mean yeah well to me, the the people that are uh, still connected are still part of what the underground was when it started. You know, growing up in the tape trading, the the underground scenes, the what what made every one of us get excited and want to be a part of this. The those people are still what's keeping the true underground alive. To me podcasts like yours uh you know into the necrosphere you know all the everything that you guys and the horsemen are doing that that to me is what the underground zine movement was back in the the 90s it's just it's got a bigger platform now and i really like that i like the fact that there's still this breath of life coming from these podcasts and I hope to see more people 
get involved with it and start checking it out because I think it will bring the excitement that when you first heard those whatever demos just made you excited or that first song that go made you go, man, that's that's what I want to do. I want to play that style of music now. It's it's still there. And there's always going to be posers in the scene. They'll come and go. It's just always been that way. And and they'll have their five minutes in the spotlight. But the ones that that this is their life, this is who they are, this is what they are all the time, they're going to keep it alive. Yeah. No, I think that's the thing, like, uh, I always think about with, like, the poser bands and stuff going on. It's like, no one's going to rem- think about those bands in five years, let alone, you know, let alone 10 years, you know, but then you're going to have people who have been in this 20 years, you're still going to be in it in 20 years, you know, it's like, it's just a fact. It's, if, if you're in it for life, you're in it for life, you know what I mean? It's basically like a pop, pop music invasion taking place to some degree, you know, again, these bands, they'll come in, they'll shine for a few minutes, and then 15 years later, you're going to still be going back to Bathory or, you know, Dissection or Emperor or, you know, name it, and the bands that will be iconic forever versus the bands that are just kind of popping in saying, hey, look at us, and then they'll go away. Exactly. How did you uh, how did you get into to metal? Was it kind of concurrent with the kind of spiritual side of things as well, or um, going back to like I was five years old. My brother is ten years older than me, and he had stayed the night. Actually, I guess I would have been more around six because he was driving at this point, and he got the kiss like a couple of uh, VHSs that he had at the house when he came to stay the night. Uh, we, we have different dads. So he, you know, back and forth between houses. Right. And, uh, I watched, uh, kiss exposed at that age and really got into that. And dude, I've instantly gravitated toward that dark image of Gene Simmons. Yeah. As the demon. And my aunt, on my mother's side is really the catalyst because she and I were very close and I go hang out with her in early eighties and she's blasting Metallica Testament death angel and turn me on to black Sabbath. And that's, that's where it's, the ball really got rolling. The first time I heard black Sabbath, and I still like I borrowed a cassette from her back in the eighties and I still have it. Right. Uh, <laughs> at, at one point uh, she passed away a few years ago, but uh, I, I showed her that I had the cassette and she was like, you can just keep it at this point. <laughs> but uh, what, which cassette was it? Was it it uh... was, we sold our soul for rock and roll. Oh, cool. Yeah. The, the, the best of one. Yeah, and man, that that got me wanting to play. And then school friends, uh, you know, fortunately I had Headbangers Ball back in the day. I was 
fairly young listening to like Carcass and Napalm Death and of course all the hair rock and everything in between thrash. Um, but my aunt took me to my first metal shows, uh, seeing Megadeth and Pantera and but I would, if I had to pinpoint the one singular moment that made me go, this is it, when Morbid Angel's Covenant came out and they debuted the video for Rapture yeah. on Headbangers Ball, a buddy of mine had videotaped Headbangers Ball and called me over, like he called me up Sunday morning. He's like, dude, you got to get over here and see this. <laughs> and we watched the video for Rapture. And I was like, that's it. That that was the the moment right there where I was like, that's what I want to do. Was that the first uh like death metal thing you'd heard? Like or had you heard I, death metal before that? I prior to that, you know, I was already listening to Slayer and Napalm Death and Carcass, but it didn't really register that that was um more extreme. Right. Something about something about Morbid Angel really just clicked. Because like the kind of uh, I don't know, like the kind of satanic occult vibe that they got, like in the way the music is and everything. Just do you think that was, that might have been part of it too? Because for me, yeah, like, I think um, like I didn't really get like I knew death metal bands like Cannibal Corpse because you know I had first really gotten to you know Slayer and Metallica and Black Sabbath, you know the, the classics, right? And I had heard Cannibal Corpse and. And uh, and I liked it, but I think the the first death metal things that I really liked was uh, Deicide and Morbid Angel, and that's like where really I started really getting more into death metal was hearing Blessed Are the Sick by Morbid Angel, you know. Yeah, the uh, when when Covenant came out, uh, my buddy got the cassette, and of course we shared it back and forth. And I wound up with it like he he just kind of gave it to me at one point. And uh, I obsessed on the lyrics, the imagery, the everything with it to the point when I was in school, then I was I wasn't the best student. Uh, I really didn't give a shit about school. And I eventually left and homeschooled. But uh, I was in uh, something. It was basically in school suspension. Okay. And uh, they wanted us to write out of a dictionary all day. And I had the Morbid Angel Covenant tape in my pocket, pulled it out, and I wrote those lyrics all day long. And that's what I turned in. <laughs> I don't even think I don't even think they read them, but uh, as as that band happened, I got deeper into the underground and started just, I dove head head first into death metal real quick. And uh, the first, I would say the first black metal band that really kind of was a catalyst for me was Dissection. Okay, like Storm of the Lightsbane or Sombrelane? Yeah. Yeah, Storm of the Lightsbane was the first album I heard by them. And yeah. this Again, the darkness with it, the just, man, it was a total package for me. And then, of course, around the same time, I got anthems to the Welcome at Dusk. And 
Dark Side and just all these albums that I kept finding and finding and finding. And it was an exciting time in life, man. You know, back when you would actually get a pen and paper out to write to the band that you liked and wait for weeks at times to, just to hear back from them. And uh, it was, it was magical. Yeah. It was kind of, yeah. The coming up, up in the, the, the nineties, like this, like, uh, you know, like uh, can imagine it was a, was a awesome time to be getting, getting into all this stuff. You know what I mean? I got lucky, man. Like some of the, the first shows I went to in the underground and the first festival I went to was Milwaukee metal fest in 98, you know, where, uh, I saw death mayhem, uh, impaled Nazarene, uh, mortician nile uh pessimist uh god that that list sodom and destruction played um just what an amazing festival it was to be exposed to so much uh merciful fate played i literally ran into king diamond in the hallway of the venue like That's just awesome. <laughs> going from one one stage to the next and i mean he's like he's like five foot six and bumped into my chest and was like apologizing and i realized who he was and yeah. was freaking out because <laughs> i was already a fan of merciful fate at that point yeah so you're like but, oh fuck it's fucking king diamond <laughs> yeah dude i mean i got to see them again last year it was the first time i'd seen them since 98 that was a great shot. Man. I saw them here, yeah. Yeah, I went up to Cincinnati and watched them and phenomenal. Weird, weird show though. The venue had chairs and I had I had a really good seat on the floor, but because there were chairs, I mean, you know, creators playing, you expect a pit to open up and here's everybody's just standing at their chair. Right. And as we <laughs> I wound up moving up to the balcony to, just to get a better view of uh, Merciful Fate and phenomenal show. Plus, the two guys standing next to me smelled like armpits and assholes. <laughs> I hate that when you go to a show and you get this look <laughs> and people smell like shit, you know? Yeah, if, if I could spread any one message to the underground, don't be afraid of soap, water, and deodorant, you know? Yeah, it's, a, it's an important thing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh maybe don't eat a bunch of fucking onions and stuff before you go to a show like this yeah jesus yeah <laughs> I, I don't know how it is but I, I managed to get next to the smelliest human beings alive at times <laughs> it happens yeah the uh that show is i went to the show here for merciful fate last year i guess that was about a year ago now and uh almost, yeah and that was that was incredible like um seeing them live like was just like uh you know it was a dream come true because you know i never thought i was actually going to see merciful fate you know yeah that was the second time i'd seen uh midnight and the first time i i admit i didn't enjoy them but at that show man they were i don't i don't know what changed in between the first time to the second but i really dug them first time seeing creator they were flawless and of course, Merciful Fate came out and just put a clinic on how to perform. 
between the set, the songs, everything. Yeah. I was I was just like a kid again watching it. I love the, the whole stage get up that they had with like the stairs and you know, just the whole thing, you know, like creating this type of um you know thinking about, you know, how old King is at this point to have such an amazing voice. Man, it just it blows my mind. I've I've been lucky to see a few legendary bands in the last few years. I've uh Murmur and I went and saw Judas Priest a couple years ago. That's that's the only time I've got to see them in Flawless Live. And then another friend of mine and I went to see Iron Maiden and had floor to floor seat so i'm like 10 feet from the band oh man that's crazy <laughs> and dude they just they there's a reason why they had that legendary status for sure they came out and just absolutely killed the entire time yeah i haven't actually seen iron maiden or judas priest it's like one thing that i'd like to do but yeah we'll see you next time either one of them comes here because i'd really like to see both of them at least once you know my, the the same buddy I went to Iron Maiden with, uh, he is, is like I live close to Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah, that's where I see a lot of shows. And uh, Kiss is coming, and he he was asking me if I wanted to go with him to it. And then he looked up the ticket prices. Right. Uh, <laughs> the same spot, like to be in the same spot where we saw Iron Maiden on the floor, they're wanting twenty five hundred bucks a ticket. Holy shit, that's outrageous! And I'm like. Dude, I at least I can say I saw Kiss. Uh, you know, I've seen them several times, and I've seen the original lineup. And uh, at this point, there's no way in hell, even though they were the band that got me interested in wanting to, like, obsessing in music in general. There's no way in hell I'd pay that much to see them. No, I just there's no way in hell I'd pay that much to see anybody. It just it, <laughs> it seems absurd that you would even do that to your fans at this point. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah, I, mean, like, I, I realize they have a huge stage production crew and everything involved. I know none of that shit's cheap, but man, twenty five hundred bucks a pop—that's insane. That's way too much. Yeah, I was just talking to a friend about this uh, the other night about like outrageous ticket prices and stuff, and I uh, I was like, he was talking about this one show it was like around that amount, and I was like. I was like, I was like, let's put it this way. So, you know, twenty five hundred dollars. Like, I could buy a three day pass for Beyond the Gates, a plane ticket, and probably pay for most of your hotel room for that same price. And you could see, yeah, you could go to a, a three day, you know, four day festival and see, you know, twenty thirty bands you're never going to be able to see anywhere else. You know what I mean? So it's like, uh, you know, I, hell to the I no. To, <laughs> I just went to Cannibal Corpse Mayhem, uh, Gore Guts, and. Uh, blood incantation a few weeks ago and that ticket was under 50 bucks yeah. and that's that's a to me that's a packed lineup you know just between cannibal corpse mayhem and gore guts that was worth it alone to me yeah so yeah some shows are yeah if you look at it that way it's like 50 dollars for a show even with some bands like you know like um like merciful fate you know I think the tickets are right around that. And that was totally worth it because you get to see Merciful Fate. You know what I mean? But yeah. it's like, <laughs> like I mean that that was another stacked lineup between Merciful Fate 
merciful fate and creator that yeah. that alone was worth it to me and then midnight was a bonus on top of it so yeah yeah i do feel like at this point generally most shows i at least want to have two bands that i want to see you know like at a at a show like unless it's cheap if it's like twenty dollars i'll go to just see the one band i want to see you know maybe yeah. 30 but anything over that it's like i need to have at least two bands and it's like always great when you get those those tour packages where it's like three or four like fucking killer bands and they all make sense together you know like that's that's even better but i mean one of the first tour packages i ever saw back in the 90s uh it was uh Gorguts, Cryptopsy, Oppressor, and Nile. Nile had just released their first al album, Catacombs. Uh, I can't remember what album Oppressor was touring on, but it was they were phenomenal. Uh, Cryptopsy, Whisper Supremacy, and then Gorguts just released Obscura. They were the headliner. Right. And dude, I'm I'm 19 years old at that show, and I mean, phenomenal. Absolutely, every band was phenomenal. And that, you know, that was still a time when they would all come off stage and talk to everybody. And it was a lot more personal back right. then, too. It was a lot smaller, too, right? You know, it's like. Yeah. I saw that saw that in Cincinnati, a place called Annie's. Uh, I, I got my picture with uh, Gorguts and uh, Nile that night. And, you know, when I saw Gorguts, a couple of weeks ago that was 25 years in between seeing them and i showed luke the picture he was actually running his own merch table which was very cool oh, that's awesome. and got to chat with him for a minute super nice guy that's that's crazy gorgots were, were actually running their own merch table you know but uh i thought would have thought that they it, but... you know my respects to him for actually getting out there and greeting the fans, taking the time to take pictures, talk to them. That's awesome. To me, did that, yeah. That's that's one of the things that makes the underground more special. I mean, the likelihood of me ever going to a Kiss show and meeting them without paying extreme amounts of money is extremely slim. Zero, yeah. <laughs> you know, the fact that I've been able to hang out with so many of the bands that I admire and meet the musicians that I admire in the underground it's it's second to none i mean there's i don't think there's another style of music like this where you get to do that maybe the only other exception i'm aware of is i'm i'm also into bluegrass and some folk music and a lot of those artists i've got to meet and hang out with yeah it's probably similar i mean uh my dad was really into folk music so he, he and i used to go to like used to take me to like a lot, a lot of folk shows at the there's a place here called swallow hill which is just the folk music venue and places like that and that that was kind of similar where they just show up if you know dude of a guitar right and he'd just be hanging out in the lobby before the show talking to people and then you know go up and perform or whatever even people who are pretty well known so it's kind of similar in that way because i guess because they're both like you know it's still it's kind of an underground thing in itself you know so it's like uh people um you're more likely to have that happen you know particularly if men yeah i mean as a kid you know i got to uh 
meet and hang out with like Bill Monroe. And uh, I've hung out and played with Ralph Stanley and some of the, yeah, I mean, some of the big names. Granted, I wasn't like on the the main stage with them, just kind of hanging out, picking and just having a good time. But there's a, an old sawmill in the town I live in out in the country. And a lot of the, the very well-known bluegrass pickers would come out there and hang out and just jam out with everybody that was there. Right. And here I am like a 16, 17 year old kid out there just one night playing my guitar and, you know, these legends are sitting alongside of me, but. Uh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's all right. It's, it's, that's a cool thing to have happen. And, Something I like about the metal world too is like this thing, like what happened with you and like Sebastian, where it's like kind of connect and you know, there's these guys who are like real down to earth and you can just talk to them, you know, and it's like you can just have these conversations with them and stuff. It's just like such a something that I really like that you can that can happen in the metal world that I think is different from a lot of other other musical styles, you know. Yeah, he's he's been a super nice dude, man. Like we chat back and forth about everything between family music. And uh, at one point I'm learning Swedish and we also, which I need to figure out a better option than what I was doing because the lessons I was taking just kind of, I can tell you that a cat reads a book a whole lot, but I can't really carry on the conversation at this point. Right. (laughs) And, uh, but, uh, you know, him and, like John McKinte and uh, Dallas Tollerway. I mean, there's a lot of Joachim from Necrophobic, uh, a lot of very cool underground musicians out there that are just extremely personable dudes. So that's, again, to me, the underground will always be the most magical musical place for that very reason is the fact that everybody that's involved isn't just a musician. They're also a fan. And as a result, I think you meet a lot more cool people here. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, if you're involved with the underground world and you're for real about your love for it and you're a fan of the music and everything, like that's one of the things that a lot of guys can connect on is just being a fan of the music and being, you know, talking about, stuff that you love you know what i mean so it's like that that kind of connects people and unifies them in, in a lot of ways you know no one of the coolest things about sebastian i i really like tried to show my appreciation for the things that he's done not only you know he he did the solo for uh obsidian shrine but i've got a, a death metal project that he's done a couple things for and he, he told me one day, he's like, you know, don't look at this as like I'm doing you a favor. I enjoy this. You, you know, you're my friend, and I, I like doing this for you. So hearing that, I mean, that means the world to me. Yeah, that's awesome. The, um, Especially cool. considering, you know, I go back to when I was a teenage kid listening to him for the first time and and just admiring his riff work and for years, you know, seeing the music videos or listening to the albums. And then the next thing I know, I'm, I'm able, I'm sitting in a a green room with him playing his 1959 or now it's 1976, uh, 
Gibson V. And I mean, just sitting there noodling on this guitar that he recorded all this amazing music on. And it, it's, it's mind blowing, but it's, it's, it just shows how down to earth this music really is. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that's one of those pinch yourself moments. You're like, is this really happening? You're like, oh, I'm really here. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, I'm, I'm at Maryland death fest and I get a text from him telling me, Hey man, meet me at the store. And, you know, we go in and wound up with, uh, back, like they gave us their backstage artist pass. Oh, really? <laughs> and so that allowed us to go anywhere in the entire Maryland death fest while we were there. Talk about being spoiled rotten. That's awesome. Do, like go up, flash your artist pass. And I'm backstage with, you know, Max Cavalera or Peter Taggarton or, you know, whoever just all over the, all over the place, man. So it was, it was amazing. Just partying in their hotel room uh, after the show, when we get back <laughs> till way too late in the morning, as a result, I, I missed the, the last day I missed Necrofire, which oh, okay. is one of the bands that I really wanted to see, but my excuse is that I was partying with necrophobic until 6 a.m. So, <laughs> yeah, so, so definitely a little late. <laughs> a little but, uh, early in the morning, yeah. <laughs> like, by the time we left, they had to get on a plane to go back to Sweden in, like, two hours. So, Oh, yeah, so they were just partying through the night, like, all right, we're just going to fly back and sleep on the plane, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, pretty, pretty wild, man. It was a good time. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I always see... Uh, Sebastian posting all of his gear stuff, which is always pretty interesting. Seeing like, all of the oh, key. he obsesses over his guitars, man. Like, it it blows me away. Like, I'm redoing a guitar for a friend right now, and I feel like I'm taking forever to get it done. He'll buy a guitar, strip it, and rebuild it in like a couple of days. Yeah, but yeah, I was I just uh, recently I bought a. Um, old uh it's like 2002 the ec300 ltd um it was like the hatfield one you know yeah and uh which is great because it was korean made this nice guitar i got for like 300 bucks usually goes for like 500 600 and i like put new pickups and i put the black winners into it the seymour duncans and that was my first attempt of trying to you know hook up pickups and <laughs> with like soldering and everything and uh yeah well, I had I kind of I, I struggled with it a little bit. I ended up having to take it to the place and have them redo because I kind of messed up. I was like, I should probably practice a little bit on with soldering before I try this again. <laughs> Fortunately, I had a lot of experience with soldering. Uh, I I went to college for audio technology in okay. my young twenties, and I wound up uh, doing a lot of live sound. I ran. Uh, I was chief engineer at a couple studios for a while and uh but I would also do installations and believe it or not, I, I worked in a lot of churches, so there's a lot of Christian money came to the Satanist <laughs> rebuilding their churches, uh putting in like huge audio video systems. And there there were days I would literally sit for twelve hours a day soldering hundreds of mic wires and i mean just mic cables and this and that going through the uh 
is we'd have to run the cables from like maybe an upstairs through a a duct up to the stage and once you get it run you got to solder all the tips for them right it man there's no telling how much solder smoke i breathed at one point but uh <laughs> I, I definitely got good at it and yeah. then i've done pickup replacements and things like that on my own guitars as a result and this guitar I'm building for my my buddy is he he had a Jackson Kelly that he hated the paint job on so I completely stripped it I'm repainting it I filled in the where the bridge pickup was and uh, excuse me neck pickup and um, I also filled in one of the like the volume knobs so when I get done with it we're gonna have just a toggle switch he just wants it to turn on and off and a single pickup and new paint job new neck everything that's a that's a pretty nice setup to just be like because a lot of guys do like the volume knob to to turn off and on but they just have a toggle switch to turn off and on this kind of yeah he had a, cool. are, are you familiar with Rand guitars from poland i don't know that one no uh like the guitars for decapitated uh plays Rand. Uh, and, uh, man, I'm trying to think of who else, but there, there's like, they were a custom guitar company out of Poland and he had one built. And when he had it built, he had it, he wanted just the toggle switch in it. So he asked me to do the same thing to this one. And then, uh, he recently bought a, like a 19, early 1980s Gibson. It's this explorer but it's i can't remember the exact model it's not it's got like a notch in it. it like it's an explorer that they made a little bit more metal looking for okay. the early 80s and uh the pickups in it are called dirty fingers he's he's going to order a dirty finger to go in this kelly that i'm building for him uh, they're uh it's an extremely hot pickup like when we're sitting here in the studio jamming it's one of those pickups that if you put it up to your face and scream into it, it's almost like a, a distorted microphone. Right. It's very, yeah, very active microphonic type of pickup. Yeah. But phenomenal sound to them. They're just, it was made for that classic 80s thrash metal sound, but it translates really well to the, the black metal that we're doing. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. The, that's the thing with the 80s like a lot of people don't realize is that like you know back in the day we didn't they didn't really have high gain amps like we do now right so they're like yeah to get they get didn't really have very good distortions either a lot of distortions around were like fuzzes and stuff right so it's like to get that kind of tone like they're pushing everything they could so it's like push the hottest pickups you can do you know boost do like boosts and all this stuff try to like, get your you know get your shit to have higher gain right until like later on in the 80s so it's like all those really really hot pickups really started coming out like in that time and i think that i prefer the kind of more hot pickups personally like i like that kind of that tone for for black yeah I, I uh, it sounds great like the guitars uh that i record with uh i replaced the stock pickups with bill lawrence 500 xls which is 
what dime bag used before there was the dime bucker. It's it's the original dime bucker, basically. Okay, cool. And uh, Bill Lawrence, if if you ever go back and see who he is, he was like a uh, a very not rock and roll guitarist at all. <laughs> but uh, it's it's pretty funny. But these they're hot rail pickups, man, and they just they have such a tone to them. I love them. So, yeah, any, and, yeah, I didn't know about those, the Bill Lawrence pickups. That's cool. Yeah. It, it really also, uh, our, our pickup styles complement one another very well. Like his has a more earthy mid range. Mine is a little bit, uh, more top and bottom. So, right. Cause if it's like, type of one that dime bag you would play i'm sure it's got a lot more of that like kind of high end yeah and low yeah, end chug, yeah it definitely like when i'm doing my trim picking and uh fast riffing and stuff it it cuts to where everything comes through with a lot more definition in my opinion yeah i think that's an important part with with that pickups really help add is that kind of definition, you know, or it's like you get a good hot, the more active pickups or not active, but the more hot pickups give you that kind of tone, that kind of note definition, like where it's like not getting all muddy and everything. You know what I mean? I know a lot of people really got into uh, active, like the EMGs, but dude, I've always a good hot passive pickup to me is, is pure gold. Yeah. I've, I've, I never really liked active as much. Like I've always preferred the passive and I've, I've listened to, you know, YouTube, like shootouts between like, like, um, you know, a hot pickup, like the black winner that I got or a EMG or something like that. And they're, yeah. the, the black winners actually sound better than the EMGs in my opinion, because they, they, I don't know. It's just like, I feel like sometimes with the EMGs, the other thing is cause they got the preamp in them. I feel like you're you're also going to get more of like the same tone as everybody else who has the EMG, you know. Yeah. So it's like where if, if you're using uh, passive pickups, each one of them is going to be a little bit different because if they're hand wound, you know, they're all going to be slightly different, have these different tonal characteristics. Where it it's it's got a lot more personality to it. Exactly. Yeah. Where if you're getting the the EMGs, you're you're going to sound like everyone else who has the EMGs, really. Like if you if you pick up tone, you know what I mean. Yeah. yeah, to me, like the EMG, if if you're playing uh, Tech Death or something like that, I could see going that route. But for me, I I want that that just whatever the personality is in that pickup that brings it all to life between between the pickup, the tonality of the wood, the, everything that makes that guitar what it is. It just seems like it gives it a lot more depth and and vibrance. Yeah, that's what I think too. Like the other thing too, with with passive pickups is you're going to hear more of of the guitar. You're going to hear more of the wood and more of the the overall tonal characteristics of you know how that guitar was built than with uh, active pickup as well. You know, in my opinion, that's that's another thing. You know, talking to Sebastian, I admire about his collection. Everyone. To me, every guitar has a personality of its own. What you're going to want to play on it uh, is different. You know, every guitar I have over here, I I tend to write something different on. 
I've, I've got a uh, seven string that is exclusively more of my death metal style. My my Jackson Warrior, my V, and those are the black metal feel comes out more in those. I've got a SG over there that I tend to play more like classic rock and that style on. It just it puts me in the mood for what I'm wanting to play at the moment. Yeah. And, I, was, I was watching a video where he was talking about that too, where he's like, the guitar, just the look and the feel of it inspires you to play certain types of things. And I agree with that. Yeah. hundred percent. I, I truly believe these instruments have life of their own and you're just kind of their muse. You know, you're, you're what's bringing out what's already there in them. So, yeah, I agree. That's that's one problem I have sometimes with having to say like order a guitar online or something is that I kind of like getting a guitar and I feel it and I play it and then you know like at at the store right if you get I yeah. like to, I like to be able to play it and feel the guitar and feel how it, feel how it feels because it's like um, that's part of what makes me get a guitar like the like the one I just got the LTD it's like part of the reason I bought it was just because I, I, I looked at the shelf. It looked pretty cool. You know, I picked it up as soon as I like started playing on it. I was like, I love this. Like I need to get this guitar. You know what I mean? Cause it was just the way that it was playing. It was just like inspiring, you know? So it's like, yeah, happens, the, you know? the instrument will speak to you. I mean, I, all my guitars are varying price ranges from pretty expensive to like one of the, the cheapest guitars I own is the one I play the most and do my most writing and recording with. So, yeah. <laughs> and it, it's just because that's what's speaking. That guitar is the one that is speaking to me at the moment. And it has whatever that life is, that magic in it. It's, it just seems to come out of it the most at times. Yeah. You can actually, I mean, that's the thing with guitars is that, you can get a guitar for pretty cheap and uh and it can be a really great guitar particularly if you throw some better pickups in it and stuff like you can have a guitar that's like on the cheaper side and it's an amazing guitar you know what i mean yeah i mean like my buddy's uh ran that he custom ordered that's a five thousand dollar guitar yeah <laughs> and then i'm the the one that i play the most uh I bought it for two fifty, brand new. I put a different pickup in it, and just did a good setup on it. And it, it, I mean, it plays amazing. So yeah, that's 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 what that's what I mean exactly. Like, um, I've been kind of wanting to get one of those those Jackson Kellys that they have that are like three hundred bucks or whatever. You know, they yeah. have the series because like I don't have any. I don't have a Jackson. I was like, I really like the. I really love the Kelly design. Like the kind of they're kind of explorer design i was like and um the, those are pre actually the, pretty nice but you just have to probably swap out the pickups put something better on it you know what i mean the first one i got was a Rhodes v and uh back when i was playing more just death metal and then i bought a warrior when when i i, I used to be in fornicus uh with uh the guy that played on like the drummer that played on bloodshed yeah and um funny thing is uh 
that that guitar just spoke to me at the time and I bought it. It again, it's cheap, but I I put a few upgrades on it and it's it's been absolutely phenomenal ever since. It's I all the uh, Obsidian Shrine stuff I've written on it and recorded with it. So yeah. That's that's uh, that's that's uh, that's exactly. I mean, it's like the cheap guitar can you just do a few things to it and you got like you know amazing guitar if it's like the right feel for you you know and then behind me the the v that's on the wall there yeah that's my newest one i changed the neck out on it and uh put the reverse headstock on yeah but that's awesome uh, other than that i haven't done a whole lot else to it the uh the stock pickups in it, even though they're, it's one of the cheaper guitars, they sound great. So, yeah. so I haven't been compelled to change them yet. But yeah, I've heard the the stock pickups even on um, was it the Jackson X series? I've heard it pretty good, even like that. And that's that's like the medium range where it's not super expensive. Yeah. Like, but I mean, even I've played on um some of the cheaper Jacksons. I thought the pickups sounded sounded good. You know, so it's like. Yeah, I'm I'm really surprised how how well these come across. I don't know if I just hit the lottery with the setup on it when I bought it, but it uh it's it's amazing. I use it on stage and it with uh, the dirty fingers that are in the Gibson, these also really complement it very well to where you hear each guitar individually, but we like when we're playing harmonies or whatever it combines really well yeah yeah that's something that i think is like uh alan avril on his podcast talks a lot about you know primordial he talks about how like one of the things he loves about old metal is how you can hear the individual tones on the different guitars you know and yeah i really like that too like i like when you can hear the the guitars have their own unique tones and they're like working together as opposed to the kind of standardized like metal tones that you hear a lot nowadays you know you know, I was I was listening to a podcast not long ago, and I cannot remember who it was that said it, but uh, it it's one of these guys that have been in the underground for a while, and they were talking about the sound of the music that you love the most, like what what era really captivated you. And he's like, we were all using cheap gear. That's all we could afford at the time. He's like, everything was, you know, just whatever we could get our hands on. But that's those iconic albums that everybody talks about. That's what they were made on. Yeah. And to me, if the instrument feels right, if it plays well and it feels right to you, price range is just a, uh, just whatever, you know. I mean, a lot of people think that they have to have the most expensive gear for it to be the best thing that they're doing, but to me, it's whether or not the instrument speaks to you. That's what I think too. Yeah. I think sometimes like the putting too much of importance on how much you pay for a guitar or something can kind of be a, yeah, you know, can be a, I, handicap I get sometimes. it. If it's an investment, if it's yeah. something that you're, you're trying to ensure that you, you know, if you ever decide to resell it, you're going to make some money on it. I get that. But me, I'm going to keep these, like my kids are going to have to figure out what happens with these when I'm dead. So, right. <laughs> yeah. 
that's not that's how I am too. I don't really sell my guitars like unless it's a complete piece of crap and I just don't want it anymore. You know, like because sometimes it happens. I... You buy a guitar and you you kind of like it, and then like after a little bit, you're like, okay, this actually I'm not feeling this guitar. You know what I mean? Like that that happens to me a few times, but generally nowadays I always if I buy a guitar, it's like I like um. I already kind of played enough at the store where I'm like, yeah, I like this guitar. I'm going to keep it, you know? <laughs> I did a lot of buying, selling, trading and stuff at one point. And I look back on a lot of the guitars that I let go and I, I really regret it. Uh, yeah. You know, like the I played my first show when I was 13 years old and I don't have that guitar anymore. And man, if I could get my hands on it, uh, I think about guitars that I've, I've played this show or that show with or recorded this or that with over the years. And I, I got to a point where I told myself, whatever I buy at this point, that I'm keeping it. It's I don't care what happens. And unless we get to a point where we're starving, I'm not selling it. So yeah. that's how I feel about most gear, like pedals amps guitars you know because i've in the I, I had a period where i end up selling some like gear and i'm like i'm like i'm not gonna do that again because like i kind of regret most of the stuff that i had sold in the past you know what i mean so it's like it I, the, the amp i play with live now I've, I've been running for several years and uh back when i was i used to be in a death metal band called gorgie and uh we played a show with uh, a festival with Gorgasm, and both the guys in Gorgasm were using Line 6 Beta HD2s. And I loved the sound of it, the tone, the uh, all the built-in effects, compression, I mean, uh, gating. Every, everything I ever wanted was built into that amp. And I know Line 6 catches a lot of shit for the products they've made, and in some cases, deservingly so, but their higher end gear, like this Veda, is a phenomenal amp. And I've, I've been, I bought it from, bought one on eBay from a country musician that said he'd never use more than two settings on it. <laughs> and uh, I've been using it ever since live, and I love it. The, um, yeah, I was watching some videos recently about the, uh, the line six uh tube amp they did with um uh what's his name i forget the guy's Wagner. with Wagner, yeah yeah that actually sounded pretty good like i thought you know like for a, a mixture of the tube and the line six i thought i was like I, i'll admit i'm a solid state guy um live especially just because i want that consistency every time and right. I, I love the way tube amps sound when you're recording with them, but for live, if those, you know, depending if on the humidity, the the heat, the cold, whatever, it's going to affect your amp sound using tubes. Yeah, and, it's a little uh, bit different. So I I got hooked on solid state as a result of that, just for the consistency. The uh, the one thing like um, with solid state is that it's gotten a lot better over time too, like compared to like i you know my old i used to have an amp that was like a hundred watt crate like combo thing i bought for like a hundred dollars or something which was a great amp 
actually like it lasted me for a long time like i still have it but it's kind of messing up now so i don't really use it anymore that was just for live just because it was like a solid amplifier but i would say that like i like tube amps a lot like i really love the sound of tube amps but i'll say that they solid state amps have gotten like even like better sounding now than they ever been like i just uh ordered uh the laney just did an iron heart 60 watt um solid state head yeah which i assorted for like particularly for at home because they can run like the headphone out and whatever uh, you know it has like a a line out um with like the with a cab simulator as well in the back so you can kind of just run it straight in for recording and stuff like that yeah and um that thing fucking sounds amazing you know it's it literally sounds like like really real like you know it it compares and not too bad from the actual you know big tube iron heart you know what i mean like it actually sounds really good for the price you know uh both of us are using profilers live so i i'm using the line six fade hd2 and then my buddy runs a kemper so he 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 drops money into high-end gear but it it's phenomenal shit that kemper's awesome so yeah the uh but I do like I do love the sound of tube amps. Like the there's something about like the presence that tube amps have that is just amazing as well. You know, so it's like I, I'll always be a fan of them for recording purposes. I just I think that again, it's it's that personality that they have. Yeah. But uh, yeah, for me, I, I guess I just got got used to preferring tube for recording and. Uh, like solid state profilers for live. Yeah, I think that makes sense, you know, like to you to get that consistency live, but then get that that kind of that tone, that particular, you know, tone if you're recording, if you're able to like record with like a, you know, a good like some tube setup like with the microphones and everything, you're going to it's going to help your sound a lot for your recording, you know. But it's like Yeah. But even with the modeling, I mean, they've gotten a lot better. There are some some bands like where you can't tell if they're what they're using. There's some bands who I feel like use modeling not not great, and you can kind of hear it in their music, you know, where it sounds like too fake or whatever. But it's like just... the uh, they're knowing several musicians, like I get high profile musicians in the underground, and then hearing some of the stuff they record with you would think that they're using this like massive Marshall rack or, uh, or whatever the high, high end amp of the cream of the crop is. And, and honestly, they're using like a, a plug-in profiler straight to the computer. And the technology again has come a long way and, uh, it's amazing how it sounds now. Yeah. It's a, it's pretty crazy. I mean, it's just like getting better and better. Like, and, um, but yeah, there's a part of me that always like loves the, the real old school st stuff. But yeah. It's like, you know, I, I, but, uh, it is like crazy how much, how much better modeling and everything is getting, you know, you know, it's funny talking about us using cult drums, you know, back in the, uh, mid 90s is when I, I started my first uh, death metal project 
back when you used like the uh, the drum machine, like the Boss Doctor Rhythm or whatever. Yep. <laughs> and dude, thinking about how bad those suck compared to what's available now, it's it's just two total extremes. Uh, but this between cult drums like uh, Superior Drummer, you know, I I noticed that Lord Armin from Dark Funeral when he writes uh, Dark Funeral albums, songs and stuff, he's using Superior Drummer when he's writing and then gets their drummer to record it live, which is pretty much what we did with uh, Bloodshed. You know, I wrote all the drums using Cult Drums too, and then Scott went in and recorded it live. Yeah, but on the uh, on the split that we recently did, that's all just cult drums, and we've got a lot of really good feedback on that, talking about how how it came out. So yeah, that sound sounded great to me. You know, like good sound. It's it, yeah, it's um in the past, like if you're doing a drum machine, like for black metal, you really had to go down the route of Mysticum or or Budos Nord or something where you made it part of your sound because if you didn't yeah. it just sounded goofy you know like a lot of the drum machine stuff back in the late 90s a lot of times didn't sound very good I get you know you had some bands who were an exception rule you know but that's usually because they made it work for them you know like like I said you know Mysticum or Limbonic Art or something where they're like made it like part of their sound you know but nowadays like these drums are so fucking good you can really make it sound like legitimate you know yeah, I mean, even Salt, like, their drummer uh, is, he's a legitimate live drummer, but when he records, he uses uh, a drum program to to get, like, a really consistent sound in the studio when he's doing it. So even though he can play it live, he's programming it for the recording. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. That's funny. So Yeah. I do, I do, I think that, um, you know, it's like, I do like it when you hear the, 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 somebody's really playing and you can kind of get some of those like little, like, uh, what do you call it? Um, so not everything's like, like perfect, you know? So it's like a little bit like, uh, that's I'm trying to think what that's the word is. The fa- basically humanizing everything. Uh, yeah. that's, that's one of the fascinating things about, this cult drums, I was really worried about that, like almost metronome style, just too too perfect yeah, kind of thing happening. But they have built a humanized function into it to where depending on how far, you, you can go all the way perfect with it to where, I mean, it's just like spot on like a metronome or you can blend like a human element into it somehow. I don't know how they do it, but it it creates those little delays, the little nuances that make it sound truly more natural. Yeah, that's something I always liked about, you know, when you listen to the early death metal stuff or whatever, black metal stuff, when you're hearing like them playing, like, you know, you're hearing like the the personality of the drummer into the, into the music, you know, and you're hearing like, you know, D, the first Deicide albums or, you know, like, morbid angel and stuff like a lot of times you're hearing like the the lack of perfection making it yeah making it kind of perfect in reality yeah because you're hearing like um you know steve's like performance in the music or you know you know 
it's it's funny uh me take like i've always I, I, I can play drums but i can't play as well as i can write the drums right yeah. so so i feel like i found a balance having like i grew up i started on piano i've i played drums guitar bass uh some wind instruments and very just various things all over the years so having this cult drum medium to where I can take what knowledge I have of actually being a drummer and turn it into something better than my own capability. It comes, comes in handy. I like to think that I write in a way that sounds natural, but I write, I write like a drummer on steroids. I write like I want to hear it. I, right. I know it's, there's a lot of blasting, a lot of really a, elongated aggressive parts but that's what i want even if i was playing with a live drummer i want them to push themselves to play that extreme yeah i think that that's kind of a cool thing that you're able to do with this with the cold drums that makes me interested to try i want to try it out because like the ability to um to kind of like express yourself through the drums even though you're not drumming it you know like is you a know, pretty cool ability to have for somebody who's maybe not like a, a drummer, you know what I mean? <laughs> even the dynamics of it, the ability to raise and lower the volumes, to to customize every single aspect of it to where it is, you know, it's uniquely you that is creating that performance when you're recording it. Yeah, that's definitely a step above, like, you know, I remember probably 10 years ago, I remember trying, um, I was trying to do programming with drums with like, I don't know, fruit, fruity loops or whatever, you know, yeah. trying to make, it was so hard to like make the drums sound good for black metal. Like I found it really difficult. And so I just like gave up on that kind of front. So like, the, what, what got me interested is, uh, cult drums two is literally marketed towards black metal they but uh like the the style the aesthetic of it the sound and there's there's multiple ways that you can uh customize your drum kit to where it, it sounds like you want it to sound for your preferred personality style and then there's a lot of different drum libraries too to choose from to to mix and match to create again the personality and the beat that you want to, to be representative with your music so right that's awesome so and it, it's just like a vsc like you can use it pretty much anything right because um i use i use reaper right now but yeah that that's what i use as well okay cool so, sebastian actually turned me on to reaper and when sebastian was writing uh in Aphelion, he was using uh like a drum program to write with. And luckily I got to hear a lot of the early mixes of that, that aren't, aren't out to the general public, you know, with the, uh, the, his program drums and everything. Right. And then of course he re-recorded had the drums re-recorded live in the studio, but that's him doing that opened up the possibility to me that I don't have to be stuck in a world where I'm, depending on musicians who 
maybe don't necessarily share the same vision goals or whatever, I can actually go and create music and do it without those limitations or restrictions. So, yeah, that's a, that's awesome. Yeah. I need to check that out. Cause, um, you know, I have like, I have a drummer now, but, but at the same time, like it'd be cool just to use for, for whatever, you know, like to, for writing and everything to have that. And it's like, um, so I'm going to check that, that out. It, it definitely helps the writing process for me. Like I said, I'll come into my studio with no idea or preconceived notion of what I'm doing and hook up and just, you know, start playing with beats and back and forth. And next thing I know, I've, I've written an entire song in a couple hours and it's already written and recorded. Yeah, and having those drums there first really helps a lot because you're like you can play to the drums and everything. Like once you get good drum beats and stuff, because like um, I've done stuff with like uh, in say outside of black metal with like more like um, goth or post punk type stuff where we have like an actual drum machine and you because it's more simple, you know, and it's yeah. using a drum machine as a drum machine. And sometimes it's like you you make that beat and that's what helps inspire the song, right? That's the same thing with black metal, like particularly if you're like playing with a drummer or if you're writing, like having the drum beat there can be really inspiring for the riffs, you know, like or it, vice versa, or you can hear the riff in your head and write the drum beat to it. But either way, you know, to me, it, I, the, it'll probably sound crazy to a lot of people, but it, it's almost that same magic of being in a rehearsal room with guys and just, and just fucking around and seeing what happens. And to me, I feel like, the way I write best is spontaneous. If I sit and try to write riffs and overanalyze them and I'll beat them to death and tear them apart and rebuild them and back and forth until it's no longer, it no longer has the original magic that if I just caught it in that moment, it's like capturing lightning in a bottle. Yeah. So no, I feel, I feel that. Uh, I feel like the best things I've ever written has been very spontaneous. It's been very like, I just sit and start writing, it pours out, and then you you get everything together. And next thing you know, you have a song, and you're like, this is amazing. Like this is sometimes even beyond what you felt like you could write. You know, the uh, the first musician that really turned me on to, I guess, how much drum programming had changed. I'm friends with Malcolm Pugh from Inferi. Okay. Uh, like they're a really well-known up-and-coming tech like extremely technical death metal band from nashville tennessee uh but uh he had a solo project called a loathing requiem and i really really liked one of the albums he put out so i i hit him up and was asking you know who who did the drums and this and that on it because i didn't see any credits and he was like, oh, that was all me. I was like, dude, you play drums? He's like, no, I programmed them. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I, I, when I say I swear I could not tell at all that it was, was like programmed, that's when I knew something had changed. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, I decided to look into it a little bit more. And then moving forward, having friends that are in one-man bands that did it. And then ultimately, like Sebastian, you know, using it as a writing tool, Lord Armin using it as a writing tool. I was like, I, I guess I need to look into this and see, see what it does for me. 
Yeah. It was kind of like a revelation for you, like really opened things up. And ever since then, you know, I've, I wrote the entire bloodshed under the black star album, uh, using cult drums too. Uh, my, a friend of mine and I did a, like a little grindcore project using it. I've done some rock and roll. Like I'm, I'm writing kind of a, like a nineties style rock and roll project, uh, using it. Uh, I've got the morgue memoirs, death metal project entirely with it. And I, every all of it's customized to the sound i want it to have for that particular project so but now i'm using it where we had scott re-record the drums on bloodshed moving forward we're using exclusively just what i'm writing and so it's i'm sitting here taking the time to map these pieces out to where it sounds like i want to fit my song so if people people want to say I don't have uh, any credit for doing it, all I got to say is sit down and try it yourself. You'll see it. There's there's some effort involved in it. You're not just. I. It's not like I just sat down and picked out a an entire drum piece that was the song. I I customize it every step of the way. Yeah. Yeah. There's some work that involves of any type of drum programming, you know, always it's one thing that when people talk shit about even like, uh, you know, electronic music guys, like I always say, like, if don't talk shit about it until you actually try to like program, you know, yeah, drum beats and do the stuff that these guys do. Cause it's like, it's not as simple as just like, as people think it is, you know, it's like, it's particularly not when you're trying to make black metal with it and trying to make it sound like the way you want it and everything, you know? In a perfect world, there would be a group of guys that would all come together and we could we could do this as a group. But I'm not going to lie, my creativity has opened up a lot more with just the two of us. It, it feels like there's less conflict, more creativity. Right. So yeah. It's just I can understand why Immortal, Belphegor, Satyricon, on and on you see these bands are two they're two people and you know when they play live they have the luxury of having enough name behind them to get other well-known musicians to get on stage with them but uh and and we're getting some of those offers yeah maybe maybe we'll look into taking up on some of them i'm not sure yet but yeah i mean it's I feel like there's a power in the duo, you know, like there's, it seems like um, you have some bands where there's like three or four guys and it somehow manages to work. Right. But a lot of times it seems like particularly with black metal, it seems like there's like a lot of, a lot of bands where it's like two main guys. I mean, you can even think of like Marduk is primarily Morgan and, and yeah. you know what I mean? Like they're writing everything pretty much. And it, it, you know, they're in everything there's a creative spark that starts with usually one individual or two individuals that share an ideology with one another. And, you know, while I have a lot of admiration for the guys that we played with in the past, like I'm, I'm really proud of Anil Domini Satanus, uh, but our sound has come more into what it, what it should be 
past that album yeah. versus when when we were all just trying to figure each other out. Yeah, I feel like when I listen to the to Bloodshed, it's a lot more um uh it feels more confident, it feels more together. Like there's a big difference to me between the two albums in that sense where it's like and and this the split stuff you did on the split continues that progression. You know, like it's because it feels like probably for that reason that you're you cut out a lot of the the static of the whole situation yeah. so you're just able to focus in on what on achieving your vision and letting that come out so you can hear that in the music you know we should have dereliction of divinity which is our new ep done uh like we're, we're gonna finalize all the recording for it this december and uh should be out early next year at some point. I don't have an exact time frame, but it's it's going to be six new songs. Uh, well, five new songs, and there's one of them that's kind of an instrumental interlude. And uh, it it's going to carry on in the vein, uh, I think, quite cohesively with what, what you're hearing now. So Awesome. Yeah, maybe there is a, There's a little bit more aggression popping up if you can imagine that in uh, some of the new songs that's a good that's a good that's a good those are there's some good words there so you know more aggressions is always better for me <laughs> and then uh there's there's also some of our like some of we're, we're both influenced heavily by a lot of the same bands and uh there's some more parts where i'm adding more keyboards to a few of the songs giving it uh, Sebastian, I let him hear it, and he told me it sounded like very early Demi Borger to him. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So it's an, it's an interesting to have the increased aggression and then add some of these the kind of keyboard elements should be a pretty interesting. Yeah, there, I yeah. mean, there's like the the songs with the keyboards. There's parts that are a little bit more atmospheric. Uh, you're going to hear probably a little bit more some punk elements come in some some of our death metal elements shine through here and there so it's it's going to be i'm i'm proud of what we're doing i it's it's just kind of a bonus to me that other people dig it so yeah yeah i definitely back what you're doing i really i like like if I had been aware of of your album when it came out last year, it would have been on my top list for sure because it's like a a really killer album. Like, I appreciate that. Uh, for us, it is very important to keep the satanic, diabolic nature of the music first and foremost in what we're doing. So, yeah, but, that's. I think that's one of the. Uh, um, I was say that's one of the most important things to me about what I like about your music is that it's uh keeping that satanic thing going, you know, like for alive and uh, you know, one of the things I relate to it the most is that it has that that satanic uh heart to it, you know, because that's obviously a big important part of for me, and I feel like it's uh, you know, the fact that you like live it. You know, like I feel like you can tell, like when I listen to bands, I'm like, I could so so often I can really tell, like this band feels like they're for real, and then knowing that you're also for real about what you believe and what everything like 
for me that elevates what you're doing above so many other bands you know it's it's who we are on a daily basis you know when i was younger i would walk around making it more apparent but with age i i've come to blend into society more and be the be the wolf kind of in the sheep's clothing to to make life more peaceful for myself but keep my ideology strong for myself my my close circle yeah no, i know you mean i know you mean exactly you know it's like you you get around and as part of actually i think the satanic aspect too is the not to know when to to uh open up about yourself and also know when you have to blend in you know like both things are important, yeah you know but it's like that like, like i said at earlier i appreciate that like what you're doing with obsidian trying really seems to be keeping a big part of what i think u.s black metal should be which is the aggression and the satanism and the, the darkness like because um yeah i feel like th hopefully there's going to be more of this kind of things in the future for for u.s black metal because you know like get rid of some of the cry by the river stuff you know <laughs> we we are here to be the fist in the face of god yeah so exactly <laughs> That's the way black Brother, be. man i really appreciate you you inviting me on it's it's been an honor and a pleasure to talk to you and it's been a great speak with you it's been a great conversation and uh, i was gonna say that um you should uh maybe i'll have you back on when you get clo closer around when you're gonna release your ep so i was if you want right to on. come on so that'd yeah. be great hopefully i can uh have murmur join me and we can and both be able to speak to you together that'd be awesome yeah so yeah let's try to do that early next year once you get the ep coming out and everything we'll have a conversation both of you be awesome when, whenever we uh get it mixed and everything i'll i'll shoot you an email and let you check it out and get your thoughts before the official release awesome thank you that'd be, a, be an honor to hear it before so all right appreciate having you on man well have a great rest of your night yeah, about to go tuck in my little boy, and my phone's about dead. So that's that's one of the only reasons I'm having to hop off here at this point. <laughs> that's all right. Yeah, well, we'll be doing it again. So I hope you have a good rest of your night, man. All right. See you, brother. See you. Hail Satan. Hail Satan. Give me your name, demon. Ancient serpents, depart from this servant of God! Tell me your six names! We are the ones who dwell within!
the devil.